Booster is excited to support DIA Schools Collaborative on furthering the missions of our respective organizations through Follow to Lead podcast and other DIA programming. Visit ChooseBooster.com for details on Booster's school fundraising events, technology, and customized spirit gear. Booster can help your Catholic school meet and exceed its fundraising goals. Learn more today. Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ the Teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your host. And on our last program, we began a six-part series based on the presentation made by Archbishop Michael Miller, then the Secretary of the Congregation of Catholic Education, in 2005 called The Holy See's Teaching on Catholic Schools. And in this and the following programs, we will be focusing on the five essential marks of Catholic education as outlined in the document that uh, he wrote that uh, especially focuses on the five essential marks of Catholic education. And hitchhiking on the four ecclesial marks of the Church, Archbishop Miller uh, expanded the list to uh, to five and then identifies five essential scholastic marks that makes the schools essentially Catholic. And we have inspired by supernatural vision, Founded on a Catholic or excuse me, excuse me, a, a Christian anthropology, animated by communion and community, imbued by a Catholic worldview, and sustained by a witness of teaching. Now, Archbishop Miller, of course, was a guest on the first introductory episode. And for those who would be interested in obtaining a copy of this document, we have a special edition of it available on our website, and we'll give you more information at the end of the program about that. But today we're going to be discussing the first essential mark inspired by a supernatural vision. And to do so, I'm so delighted. We have a very special guest with us, Mary Pat Donahue. She is the Executive Director of the Secretariat of Catholic Education for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And during her 28 years of Catholic education, Mary Pat has been a classroom teacher and was named principal of her uh, childhood school, St. Jerome Academy in Hyattsville, Maryland. And at St. Jerome, she oversaw its rise uh, to becoming a thriving school after nearly being closed. She later served as director of school services at the Institute of Catholic Liberal Education before her current position with the USCCB. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Elementary Education from the University of Maryland 
and a master's of education administration from Trinity University in Washington. And she's a native of the Washington, D.C. area and currently still lives there uh, on the Beltway in Silver Spring. And uh, for those of us at uh, the Duke and Ultim Schools Collaborative, we are especially honored that she serves on our advisory board. So, Mary Pad, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Father Randy. It's just wonderful to be with you today. Well, we're really glad that you could make this occasion with us. And we always begin our program by giving our guests an opportunity to share a little bit about themselves. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and about your upbringing? Sure, sure. Well, you mentioned I'm a rare breed because I am a native Washingtonian. Um, and I am the eighth child of two native Washingtonians. My mom and dad were both natives as well. Uh, as you mentioned, all eight of us went to St. Jerome in Hyattsville, which was a pretty typical parochial school. It, it saw oh, upwards of a thousand kids in the mid 60s. Um, and it's where I began my teaching career back in 1990. Uh, Again, 570 kids at the time. Um, what's interesting about St. Jerome's, though, is it's very much entwined with my own personal story. So as St. Jerome's began to go through a period of decline that really started around the year 2000, uh, a very profound decline in enrollment that left us by 2009 at about 235 kids but, but falling and a, a rising amount of debt and deficit, mm -hmm. um, which triggered a, a, a process within the Archdiocese of Washington called consultation. It was where the pastor, Father Jim Stack and myself um, were required to disclose to the community the exact nature of the difficulty, which is a painfully difficult thing to do, Father. I wanted to avoid it at all costs, but I'm glad <laughs> right. I didn't have and the Holy Spirit did because it turned out to be the best thing, really, because uh, out of it came um, this new model, which is uh, a, a curriculum and pedagogy that's deeply aligned with how the church understands education. Uh, the evening that we did this community meeting, uh, Father and I were approached by a parishioner, Dr. Michael Hanby at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute, who was there as a parishioner, just an interested party. And he came to Father and I and said, you know, listen, if you would be willing to reimagine this school, I, I would love to help you. And I said, reimagine. That's that's interesting. He said, reimagine in light of the church's understanding. So I said, absolutely. And uh, Michael stepped forward, we assembled a whole group, and they wrote this beautiful, unique plan um, for the school, very, very much uh, pedagogically, and also in terms of its curriculum, intended to pull forward what Stratford Caldecott uh, termed the, the logos, mythos, and ethos of Catholic education. So uh, that started in, in 2010, and I stayed there as principal for the next seven years, really got it off the ground, hired a fantastic eighth grade teacher who I kind of, uh, you know, was forming along to take my place when I left, and he did, and he's done amazing work with it. His name is Danny Flynn. Um, and then I went on to work for the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, and I traveled hither and yon to different dioceses and schools to, to really talk about this. Um, and then four and a half years ago, I landed at 
USCCB um, in the Secretariat of Catholic Education. And I have been just honored to serve uh, some wonderful chairmen. My previous, uh, the first chairman I served was Bishop Quinn of Winona, Rochester. And mm-hmm. then he was followed by Bishop Barber of Oakland. And now I currently staff Bishop Daly of Spokane. So I've, I've been most blessed and it's a, it's a great honor to work with such good shepherds. Well, it's a, a wonderful career that you've had in Catholic education. What, what um, made you move in that direction of not only being an educator, but particularly focusing on Catholic education? I always wanted to teach in a Catholic school, Father. It's so funny. I was at the University of Maryland was where I got my bachelor's in elementary education. Mm -hmm. And I was placed in probably the top public school system in the state. And they wanted to hire me at the school. We're going to hire you and we'll pay. It it was, let me tell you, it was at least twice, maybe three times what I was going to make at, at, uh, at the school. But I was very drawn um, to Catholic education, although I have to say, I don't think I fully understood it at the time. Mm-hmm. That would come over the, <laughs> the, mostly the last 15 years has been a real deep dive for me in understanding what that means. Um, but I was very drawn to it and uh, knew that I would uh, make that my career. And I have to tell you, the world was very different when I started. I, I thought to myself, hmm, I won't make a lot of money, but I'll have job security because at the time, the schools really, you know, we're, we're doing fairly well. Um, mm-hmm. But over these decades, we've just seen closure and merger. And uh, the story has unfolded a little bit differently. But it always, you know, at every turn, the Holy Spirit's there to, to, to offer us. And that's the dynamism and excitement of working in Catholic education. And after teaching and then being the principal there at St. Jerome, when you went to the Institute, uh, I think that name may be a trigger for some people when they hear the term Catholic liberal education. Can you explain what the liberal part of that actually means? Sure. sure. It's, it's interesting. It, 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 it is formed from the earliest, you know, uh, definition of liberal libera, which is to, to be free. Um, and there are, you know, a number of definitions of, of Catholic education. One that I particularly love, which is from, uh, Pope St. John Paul II, that, that speaks to Catholic education as Im- imbuing in students a vision of life that's both comprehensive and cohesive, that is ordered to, to the, the truest and deepest freedom, which is freedom in Jesus Christ. Um, and so that notion that education is ultimately uh, to, to free the individual, to, to be what God intended is really what's very exciting and stirring. Um, the word liberal, of course, has taken on a whole different meaning politically for us. So there's right. almost always uh, an introductory session that we had to do to explain that fact exactly. Well, now, uh, today we're here really to discuss this amazing document by Archbishop Miller called The Holy See's Teaching on Catholic Schools that began as a presentation and then later was written more as a booklet. And do you remember uh, the first time you heard about it or read it? Oh, yeah. I I was with ICLE when I discovered it. Um, And it was was interesting because trying to discern what the church desired was, was kind of an ephemeral thing. It was, there were many, many documents. There were many, many different iterations. 
Um, but my first reaction to the Holy See's uh, teaching, the essential marks of the school, was that it was so perfectly distilled mm-hmm. into something we could all organize our thoughts around. Um, and, and don't let the size fool you. It's pithy, but it's incredibly rich. I, I use it to this day um, almost constantly when I make presentations. I used it uh, this last semester for faculty faith formation, and it was wonderful to just unfold it with teachers, and who yes. many of them had never seen it before, and to kind of see the richness of that. And uh, previously, uh, before I was here at the church, I was the president of a brand new high school that we opened in 2017 here in Kansas City, St. Michael the Archangel Catholic High School, and I can tell you, opening a school from you know, the start, it was, uh, the first Catholic school and uh, high school in our city in 50 years that was opened. Uh, I think it was the only Catholic high school opened in the U S that year. And wow. so one of the things you look for is how do we know that we're on the right trajectory? Because if you go off, then you can really head in the wrong direction. And the five essential marks seem to, again, help to fasten us on uh, the the right trajectory. Uh, do, how do you use it today when you're working with administrators and others? Well, it's interesting. Um, I have come back to it in so many different ways. I, I will mention first the work that we're doing on the Eucharistic Revival, the National Revival, um, which is under the direction of Bishop Cousins, Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. And of course, Catholic Education Office has been asked to provide some guidance to schools. And this, you know, in turn has has caused me to reflect, you know, we know that there is a a crisis in terms of both, you know, Eucharistic belief, um, and then downstream from that mass attendance, enrollment in Catholic schools, all of it is an expression of this, this critical crisis in faith. Um, but I had spent quite a lot of time thinking about whether the issue around forming and educating was strictly a catechetical one, or was it something different and and maybe even a little bit deeper. And after doing, you know, a lot of conversation with a number of bishops, with a number of colleagues, we came to see that we're having a problem that is related a little bit to the parable of the sower, which Mm -hmm. is, we have kids, by and large, our Catholic school kids, whether they're in religious ed or even, frankly, in many of our parochial schools, that are being fed and um, educated in a, a pretty secular system, right, uh, that, that doesn't understand the supernatural order, that doesn't have a sacramental imagination. So when a teacher is trying to catechize by dropping that seed into soil that's not prepared to receive it, then we have the runoff or the birds come or, you know, the the thorns choke. Um, And so the guidance that the uh, Secretary of Catholic Education is working on is is really rooted around formation of the sacramental imagination um, in students, that we have to spend quite a bit of time whether a parent or educator to prepare our children in terms of how they see and understand the world so that these great truths of the Eucharist are not something that seems different and, 
and other, but that actually really is the heart and from it springs forward all that we understand. So that's one I, I've been, you know, using that extensively in the last few months. This is uh, this kind of does leave leads us into the first mark, but uh, I'm I'm really intrigued by what you're talking about because it sounds to me again like it it's a secular worldview that we're trying to speak into, and it just isn't going to absorb uh, what we're talking about. No, and, and I, uh, I, our experience is consistent with that. Most of the time, we find when we're teaching the sacrament to seven-year-olds, right, who still have something of an imaginative spirit, they accept the teaching, um, they love the teaching, but by the time they hit adolescence, oftentimes they're done. In fact, our research tells us that the average age of disaffiliation is 13. Um, so clearly something isn't, isn't catching. Um, and I think we need to, to step back and take a look at that. And this book gives us the means to do that. It gives mm -hmm. us five places to start. And what's wonderful about it is you, know, you can go to great depth in any single one of those marks. So there's lots to do with it. And uh, that first mark really speaks to what you're talking about. Yeah, as, as you were describing this whole scenario, I think about my own experience teaching uh, confirmation to eighth graders. And they just sit there and roll their eyes. And yeah. you just, you don't know how much of it is, is getting in or whether they even understand the wonder and the awe that you're really trying to unfold before them. That's right. And wonder, you know, the, the Greeks told us that wisdom begins in wonder and wonder is really the thing that must power all of education for it to really truly be meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, the problem, of course, that you ran into, Father, that I run into is, you know, if they haven't tasted wonder, uh, adolescence is a hard time to start with right. that. So it does tell us that our work really begins much, much sooner. So the first essential mark uh, in uh, the in the document is inspired by a supernatural vision. And Archbishop Miller describes that as the specific purpose of Catholic education is the formation of boys and girls who will be good citizens of this world, enriching society with the leaven of the gospel, but who will also be citizens of the world to come. As a Catholic educator, what do you think this looks like in today's Catholic school? Yeah, I think, well, I think as you, you mentioned earlier, Father, you have to start with the teacher. The teacher really needs to, to sort of meditate on this. Um, I would encourage principals and faculties to spend great amounts of time unpacking this, as, as you have mentioned, because what, what this actually means is having at the deepest levels an understanding of the nature of reality and the nature of the human person. Now that gets unpacked later in the Christian anthropology section. But this first one to me is the reflection of the Logos. This understanding that Jesus Christ is the ordering principle of reality. All things were created through him. All were created for him. He is before all else. And that means a couple things for Catholic schools. For one, it means we need no other organizing principle. We should never be trotting along behind common core or, or some other set of secular standards. This is our standard. Mm -hmm. um, 
this understanding of, of the created order. Um, but it also speaks to the, the ends of the human person that you just mentioned, that we prepare certainly for, um, for citizenship in this world. We want them to live um, happy, well-ordered lives in service to God and others. We want them to experience some success in this world, but never ever to forget their eternal destiny, the transcendent destiny of, of the human person, which means that at all times, you know, we, we walk through this world, but we walk through as, as, as travelers, you know, so that we want our kids to, to judge wisely the things of this world, but desire mm-hmm. the things of heaven. That does not come except through great intentionality. So I think that's the takeaway for teachers. I know that one of the stereotypes of Catholic education is it's basically a private school that does some Catholic things. Is it, uh, is this still a problem or even perhaps a temptation for schools to try to draw students by just doing Catholic rather than being Catholic? Yeah, I, th- I think it continues to be an issue. And, and partly because the modern world that we live in tends to fragment things. We fragment knowledge, we take knowledge and break it into a thousand different standards. Um, and so the, the church calling us to an integral formation is a little bit different. And I do think there's still a struggle in some places to achieve that. Again, there's a tendency to think of, you know, I've heard it said many times by Catholic educators, well, we have two pillars, we have academic excellence, and we have Catholic identity. Well, right. those should be one pillar. There should absolutely be one pillar that that's really the, the base of it is Christ the Logos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really is the the faith and reason. So introducing our own people to their patrimony and their heritage, I think is the work that we need to be doing. Always showing the distinction. Just, I, I may be moving from asking questions to meddling, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I see is this uh, is a, a need to continue to have the students excel to the point where they're doing well on their ACTs, for example. Yes. Um, yes. Can you do that successfully and still fulfill this vision? I, I think that when you seek the highest good, which is ultimately freedom in Christ, you know, in the, in the next life, you can fulfill the lower goods. Certainly um, students who have been given the tools of learning that have been nourished on this understanding of the cosmos as, as being ordered in Christ to understand that through the incarnation, we have purpose and meaning in our own lives. Done that well and done that way, they're going to do fine on their SATs, right? Mm -hmm. The problem for us is that too often American education's horizon is just too flat and too low. It's just doing well on the SATs. And I think C.S. Lewis said something about this once. He said, you know, if you you, uh, shoot for heaven, you'll get heaven and earth. But if yeah. you only shoot for earth, you won't get heaven and you really won't get earth. You won't do that well either. Yeah. Um, I think that's part of that is a, there's that's almost like a, a leap of faith for people to, to make that. Um, but I, the world is starting to show itself in such a way that more and more Catholics are saying, you know what? I'm willing to, to try. I'm willing to mm-hmm. bank on this. I know uh, that uh, a friend of yours, Elizabeth Sullivan, 
from uh, the Catholic Liberal Education Institute, uh, the executive director, uh, commented on this, Mark, by saying, without a supernatural vision across the curriculum, we uh, cannot explain such things as eternal life, the communion of saints, uh, acts of providence throughout history, or the possibility of miracles. And and so I know one of the things that she and I, I hear you asserting very strongly is this can't be just left to the theology class. Oh, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It, it has to inform every single thing that we do. Um, education is also about bringing students into an understanding of reality. Now, <laughs> Chesterton once said, we shall soon find ourselves in a world where a man will be hanged for claiming that grass is green. Well, yeah, we're there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're there. And there's a great assault on, on reality in, in a sense. So uh, it is absolutely critical that the English teacher is, is understanding this vision and is choosing works that reflect it, that elevate it, that help the child to see and understand um, reality that is supernatural uh, at root. Same thing with math and science. You know, we, we should never allow these to be trampled under this banner of, well, it's STEM for the sake of getting a good STEM job. Um, in fact, math and science are privileged encounters with the divine order. Mm -hmm. um, and they're an astounding way to see, uh, to see reality, to see a logocentric um, world without sacrificing any of the academics. I mean, study it deeply, study it on its own, uh, by its own lights and by its own merits. But in doing so, you will grow closer and closer to, to Christ the Logos. So no, this cannot simply be. In fact, it's more damaging, I think, when you have, you know, the dualism. You have a very good mm -hmm. theology department and they're they're teaching these truths. And then the kids go down the hall and, and in science class, they are getting a scientistic uh, approach, which is saying that only that which can be measured and quantified can be called true. Well, mm -hmm. that just undermines everything your, you know, your colleague did down the hall. I know this was, of course, you can tell by my white hair, my, my uh, high school education and college education took place decades ago. But even back then, I, I'm a convert. So I, I came out of the Protestant world and attended a, a, a Christian college. And even back then, this was in the, uh, very early 70s. I mean, our biology professor said, I leave my faith outside the classroom door. And I thought, how horrific for us to, to just abandon faith, thinking that it has no consistency with the sciences. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately, that's kind of, I think, been a continuing theme. Uh, thankfully, I think it's being overtaken in many places which is wonderful. I, I think it is. I think it is too. And it, it does kind of harken back to that term liberal in, uh, in liberal education. And that is the restoration of the liberal arts. Part of the problem is that, you know, theology was always understood as the queen of the sciences and below right. that philosophy, the way to think about thinking. And then below that, the quadrivium, the sciences, and then the trivium, which is the arts of language. Uh, and it was really in ascending that ladder that a student could, could grasp fully mm -hmm. um, these deep theological uh, truths. And the reality is we've sort of, we kicked the ladder out of the way and 
then sit there and go, gee, nobody seems to really be understanding or taking this in or living as if it's real. And I think it's because we just, we took away their, their steps to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of education reform, I think does need to be restoring that so that we can, um, we can support a supernatural vision throughout the curriculum. One of the things that was especially fun for me back in my St. Michael's days, we have four Dominican sisters teaching at the school. And one of the sisters teaches biology and has a PhD in biology. Uh, Our theology teacher also has a PhD in engineering. And then one teaching in math and one teaching in English. And so there's this natural, even uh, incarnational integration that our students are seeing in that. Yes. And this is what you want. This is exactly what you want. Uh, I had the same experience when I was at St. Jerome Academy. I had um, uh, a wonderful teacher of our nature studies program who has a PhD in solar physics, but he studied at Thomas Aquinas College. He was able to really bring that together such that in the very beginning, some of the kids were, were saying, which class is this? We're not sure what you're doing here because all of it does is integrated so well. Mm-hmm. Now, what about uh, extracurriculars? What about sports? How does this yeah. uh, supernatural vision uh, sort of uh, influence our look at sports? Yeah, sports are so important, you know, in in education and in the lives of young people. And when done with virtue, they they just can be tremendous. Not just physical conditioning, which is important. You know, we, again, that speaks to both the anthropology and the supernatural vision that we are, we are embodied souls. We're not, you know, we're we're not simply one or the other. Um, We need to care for both. Um, And I also think it's just a, a, a part, all of us have had great stories and experiences of, you know, uh, the agony of defeat, right. Uh, And what the lessons that you take from that. The problem is the, in sports is the problem so common in many things today, which is the problem of proper ordering, making Mm -hmm. sure that it's in proper order and proper proportion. And I'm really kind of speaking to the adults there um, because sometimes it's the adults that lose their sense of, of really um, the virtue that can be around sports. Um, But I think when it's done well, it's a critically important part of, uh, a, a child's educational experience. Another area that that I found um, a bit challenging is the area of fine arts. For example, picking music for the choir, uh, picking yes. the play, the musical, uh, because there are so many uh, beautifully done uh, pieces of work that could be used but really do not convey a very uh, Christian or Catholic message. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it is a, um, it's a little bit of a a difficulty, I think for all of us that are involved in this, but if we are thinking and guided by those, the, the, the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty, you know, um, and a willingness to, to think a little bit more broadly than just, you know, with what's with us today, um, then certainly we, we can have those things, but, but you're quite right. It's difficult. One of the things we struggled with when I was at the school again is, you know, it's, it's a different thing to when you read the text of an author who is 
writing at the height of Christendom, who was inspired himself by a, a, a Christian worldview. It's quite a different thing than when you read literature of today. So sometimes it was really having, not just because things were old per se, but rather because they came from a Christ-centered time. Mm-hmm. Uh, want to bring those forward to, to demonstrate that to the, to the kids, but no question. It's a challenge. Now, as we move, I mean, curriculum is obviously very critical, but one of the other sides of the whole uh, school environment is its own Catholic culture. What are some ways that uh, schools can address Catholic culture and to bring about that, that incorporation of, of a truly Catholic spirituality into their daily lives together. Oh yeah. You know, well, father, I'll start with probably the most basic and that often gets overlooked is just the, the aesthetic, the the physical environment of the school. Uh, You know, the church calls our schools to be communities rather than institutions. And in the recent document from the Congregation for Catholic Ed of last year, the identity of a Catholic school for a culture of dialogue. The authors of the piece remind us that often the school is the first place we're receiving children when they come right out of their parents' arms or coming into our schools. So we really should strive for an aesthetic that is rooted in beauty and truth mm-hmm. and goodness. You know, modern classrooms can look jarring. They are just overly decorated. There's laminated posters. You really need none of that. Just a a, a simple, um, pleasing paint color on the wall, some beautifully framed art, some nature, uh, plants, flowers, animals that can be brought in rocks um, that can be brought into the room uh, because God is the the, the best artist. And so certainly the, the environment I think would be one. Um, the other thing with culture, though, I think is to work and it's difficult in schools because we, you know, we have sort of the the stratified by age uh, model mm-hmm. and to look for ways to have um, intergenerational mixing even. So having, you know, uh, extracurricular events that involve the whole family Um with the understanding that what we're really trying to do is to, to teach and form our young people to socialize. Mm-hmm. So rather than just thrusting them into a, you know, the eighth grade dance is the first thing they ever do. Um, you know, and you, we've all seen that the boys all stand on the wall and the girls, st- you know, stand around wishing the boys would talk to them. Nobody knows what they're doing. So I think being deliberate ab- about that, but then in terms of, you know, working in um, the liturgy, which is the source and summit of all that's true, good and beautiful, uh, making sure that our worship, we worship well mm-hmm. and, and with a great um, reverence for, for that. And that uh, our students have an opportunity both to come together as a community, but then also to seek worship on their own. Mm-hmm. When you can, it's nice to be able to say to students, you know, There'll be a mass this or this time. If you would like to go, you know, you can avail yourself of that. Um, I think that passing on our, our traditions, our celebrations, our feasts, 
St. Joseph, St. Patrick, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, all of these things are very, very important um, in passing on our culture and heritage as well. One of the things in opening a new school, we had the privilege of establishing traditions, and that was kind of fun so that you did things recognizing that you were going to institute something that hopefully would perpetuate, especially with a Catholic uh, spirituality. I know for instead of doing a Christmas choir concert, we did lessons and carols, for example. I love that. I love that. And, yes. You know, it's a way of of continuing to bring that out. And uh, I know that uh, in so many schools across the country, the use of community systems with smaller houses where there's this intergenerational, yeah. uh, instead of the layering of schools, has really, I think, brought about greater community. Agreed, 100%. And the ways that we can bring families into that as well, I think, mm-hmm. is important. For me, I think maybe one of the disappointments I found in Catholic education uh is realizing how many how few of the school families really are practicing their faith. That for many yeah. of the students that I encounter, the all-school mass may be the only mass they really attend during the week. Uh families are so busy on the weekend with sports and other things. Um right. and you know, I I know that this whole thing of uh, this essential mark of a Catholic school is so critical, not just for the student, but hopefully to somehow work its way back into the family. Do you see some ways in which this is successfully being done or ways that we could do it better? Well, you know, Father, I agree with you. I think it's critically important. Uh, I do think that to some degree, there's, again, the word intentionality. Um, there has been, you know, over this the decades in modern education, sort of a, a severance between the, the home and the school. And they were two different groups. Um, so we have to work to kind of bring them together, to bring families into the life of the school, which of course is essentially a part of the church um, with the hope that they can kind of be brought more fully into that. So, you know, there, there are some things that I, I've seen done well. I've seen, um, you know, schools that have had, family field trips on the weekends, you know, where families are brought together to go to a museum or an art gallery or, you know, the botanical gardens, for example, you know, this in and of itself may not seem like much, but it's an opportunity for a a family that feels they don't belong to have some belonging. Um, You know, when they look into these surveys, like the Pew survey and the, and the surveys, research reports on the disaffiliations and the nuns, et cetera, the sense of not belonging is kind of the the driver. I just didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't think it mattered if I went or didn't go. Mm -hmm. So finding ways to plug families in that's a little bit different. And that's not just asking them to volunteer, but rather, you know, inviting them um, to do something. So I think repurposing your home and school association or your PTA um, to have a mission uh, that's really oriented to bringing families in, I think is one way to go because they, they know best really mm-hmm. how to deal with each other. Um, again, multi-generational activities where we are inviting, you know, the, the mother-son, the father-daughter, um, where there is a family component. And then there are people who they come to know. I think that is also critically important. You know, it's to me at the end of the day, it's all relational and it's all invitational. So mm-hmm. just keep 
plugging away at it and inviting. I, I really love the way that you put that as being relational and, and in that part of it's just developing a conversation with your families that, that yeah. it's not a place that you drop off your kids, but it's a place where we want to continue a dialogue with you, whether it be through newsletters or meetings or the field trips or whatever, but there's a partnership. I think that's, that could really drive things in such a powerful way. And I think it's important to take your parent organizations and bring them into that mission so mm -hmm. that it's not all falling on the school administration. You have so much to do as it is. That can be difficult. But if you get your, your, your involved parents on this, you know, with a, an eye toward outreach, I think that you really have a good, a good chance at that point. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that's happened recently, I think post COVID years have really been good in cat for Catholic education. We've seen a huge influx from the public schools uh, into uh, our Catholic schools for a variety of reasons. Uh, in particular, uh, the values that we represent uh, kind of give a safe place. And one of the things that happened, I think, with this is uh, a huge influx of Protestants uh, into uh, Catholic education. And I'm just thinking about uh, this essential mark of uh, being uh, with a supernatural vision. This mark can either be affected by this change in the demographic or can affect in a new way the demographic that we have. Do you have any thoughts on that as we see uh, like some schools moving to 25, 30 percent uh, non-Catholic? Yeah, yeah. It's an, it's an interesting um, place in which to find yourself. And it does call forward tremendous intentionality on the part of the, the school to maintain it's it's Catholic identity and it's Catholic mission throughout. I think one thing that we have to to be able to be okay with in our own minds, when you have find yourself with a large non-Catholic population, the temptation can sometimes be to sort of soften or or weaken or just think, well, they, you know, they're not Catholic, but no, be as robust as ever with your non-Catholic community. Show them. Uh, the vitality and the beauty of liturgy, help them enjoy those feasts and celebrations. We are an incarnational faith. Um, so I, I would say it's really a call to work even harder um, to, to make the Catholic ethos as present as possible. Uh, I've been there myself. I've been um, at times principal where there have, has been a plurality of, of non-Catholics. And uh, what I find is that the beauty of, of Catholic education is that it so speaks to the soul and the intellect that, that they're, they love it too. Our, every mm -hmm. soul seeks harmony with it. So my, my advice is simply not to say, well, we, you know, we really can't do these. No, you can, and you should, and do them as beautifully and well as you can. It would seem to me as a <clears throat> priest and a pastor, one of the things that we can do is really give a good explanation of the why behind the what. Oh yeah. You no, know, it not only helps our our Catholic constituents, but our our uh, non-Catholic constituents as well, especially for those from a Protestant background to really learn why we do what we do. It makes them less nervous about it and invites them to participate in even a maybe a greater way. 
so well spoken. And in fact, it's interesting, just in conversations we're having internally at USCCB, the importance of the why, even for Catholics, um, though yeah. have lost touch with that, but particularly where we know that there are sensitivities. So if we can do a, a better job of explaining um, the role of our Blessed Mother in, in salvation, in the economy of salvation, for yeah. example, that all that we know and believe about her is, is really uh, more aimed and ordered to what we believe about Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. So some of that, I think, being able and willing to, to take that on. But also when you get to things like the church's theology of marriage, you know, sure. it's, it's something that needs to be represented for everyone, for everyone's benefit, but to be able to do that well, um, to spend time really contemplating the nature of a human person in light of all that. So there's a lot of great curriculum out there now that's that's doing mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's more important than ever um, to present it more fully and and more deeply than we have. Mm -hmm. Well, I tell you, we could keep going forever, uh, <laughs> Mary sure Pat, could. and I'd I'd love to do that, but we've got to kind of watch our time a little bit. Uh, just um, as you look at the five marks, is there an identifying mark that you think should be added to the list? Hmm. Oh boy. Well, you know. I, I would never presume to do that to Archbishop Miller. He's just so <laughs> brilliant. And right. uh, you know what? No, no, I don't think I would add. I think I sometimes think I may be making work for myself as I say this, that, that these five marks need to be drawn out more, that I think the next level is to draw them out, um, to look at them more deeply in terms of our curriculum, our pedagogy, our, our school cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that if they are just, left as they are, um, they may not be as effective as if we can pull and consider more deeply based on them. So I feel like they're, they're great as they are. They just probably need to be, um, fleshed out a little bit more first. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And just going through the materials and what's interesting is there's not even, uh, a, a great deal of resource material based on them. No. And I, I think that there's this gold mine here that really could be yes. uh, worked uh, quite powerfully. I know there are some resources available. I know the uh, Institute of Catholic Liberal Education has a fairly new book called Renewing Catholic Schools, How to Regain a Catholic Vision in a Secular Age, which is a wonderful book. Uh, are there other resources, too, that are out there for people that want to kind of dive a little deeper into this? Yeah, uh, Ryan Topping has a book, um, uh, The Case for Catholic Education, How Parents and Educators Should Reclaim the Principles of Catholic Pedagogy. Um, there's a, a, a book on, it's a nice pithy little book on sort of the development of Western education edited by Michael Naughton, and it's called The Heart of Culture. Mm -hmm. And that's an excellent, excellent book. Um, I also have, have really loved um, a, a book called Beauty in the Word by Stratford Caldecott. Um, it's just a beautiful sort of philosophical meditation on, on what it really means to educate, to, to, um, to develop what's most human in our, in our kids. So those would just be a couple off the top of my head that I would point people to. Boy. Yeah. I can see my reading table getting higher. Just looking <laughs> at those, that those are great recommendations. Wonderful. 
Well, <clears throat> just one final uh, question for you. Uh, as you're aware, our audience primarily is made up of Catholic school administrators and teachers. Uh, from your place as uh, uh, the executive director of the Secretariat at the US USCCB, what message would you like to share with Catholic school administrators and teachers today? Well, I, you can't maybe see this, but I would be tipping my hat, first of all, to the incredible work that they've done, especially during and just after this uh, COVID pandemic, which is, has just been astounding. Mm -hmm. um, but secondly, I, I would just want to encourage them. I know it's difficult to, to be doing this. Whenever you're witnessing to Jesus in a culture that rejects him, it can feel very uh, wearying and mm -hmm. tiring. Um, but my message is that resistance is telling you that you're, you know, or as I used to say, if, if there's a lot of flack, you're over the target. Right. Um, so keep going. So, you know, do not lose heart, but also, you know, um, band together as, as disciples and live that discipleship together with your own interior life um, and the support and friendship uh, among your, your fellow teachers. I think that's mm -hmm. what we're going to need to do in these next years. Well, Mary Pat Donahue, thank you so much for being our guest today on Follow to Lead. This has really been fun. It's been a delight. And oh, I just Father, thank you. I couldn't agree more. And thank you. I was honored to be here. Well, and if our audience wants to know more about what's going on uh, with the Secretariat, is there a place they can go? Sure. We have a website. It's uh, usccb.org and just find the under offices, Catholic Education, and that will, uh, will lead you to some of the things that we're working on and a way to contact me as well. Okay, very good. Well, for our audience, if you haven't done this already, please be sure to follow our podcast and to leave a comment to encourage us toward future programs. And to learn more about Duke and Altam Schools Collaborative, please visit our website at diaschools.org. Again, a downloadable version of Archbishop Miller's presentation is available on the podcast page there. And we also want to thank our production assistant, Alex Shire, for his assistance in the production of this podcast. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altam Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.